Hey everybody, it's Ep Percussion Podcast. It's episode 295. We're recording on August 22nd, but you're probably listening on September 2nd. That's release date, so hey, hey, and welcome. Uh, with me as usual, I've got the, the regular crew. Ksenia Kubianovich is here. Hey, Ksenia. Hello, Casey. What's up? Nothing much. Ben Charles is here too. Hey, Casey. And Carly Vigna from her new digs and just, uh, I think, a, an hour or so north of me at her new gig, Shenandoah Conservatory. What's up, Carly? I'm so happy. I just want to say I really like Virginia. It's been a week and, and I'm like super happy. We went on a hike yesterday. It's cool. Virginia is cool. It's cool. Yep, yep, yep. There's lots of good hiking things and caverns and all this good stuff. And it's going to get better looking because it's been super dry here. We just had a ton of rain. There's going to be more. It's going to like it usually looks even better right around now. So welcome. Hey, thanks. Cool, cool, cool. So like I said, we are releasing on September 2nd, and this is going to be a little bit of a review history day. So Today, Bing Crosby made his CBS radio show debut in 1931, and one of my favorite oral exam questions is what the heck does Bing Crosby have to do with one of our most famous, important composers in percussion? And you all might remember this from many, many episodes back. Does anybody remember? I'll give you a hint. It's not Mitchell Peters. Was he friends with Zanakis? It, it, it's, it's like a connection they didn't know about. So it's Bing Crosby. And I'll give you a hint. The composer's first letter of the name is a V. And then there's also like a R-S in it. You have no idea. V-R-S? That's it. You got it. You just sounded it out. That's right. So Bing, so Bing Crosby has a, a very key connection to Varese, unbeknownst to the two of them. And I don't think cited really in any uh, percussion history or pedagogy uh, literature type of type of text. But we, re we reported on this, uh, gosh, way, way back. I think it was Bob McCormick's episode and later in Cynthia Ye's episode. But the connection is the Ampex tape recorder, right? Like, as you know, Varez has a lot to do with electronic music. And like the, of course, he's important to us because of the percussion ensemble piece ionization. It's arguably, you know, one of the first percussion ensembles, if not the first, whatever. They can argue about that. That's another good uh, dissertation question. But being Crosby is very likely responsible for Varez's experience and composition in tape music because... Bing Crosby was producing his regular radio shows and he got a hold of one of these Ampex reel-to-reel -reel tape machines and because of its uh, amazing ability to replicate, like copy, right, it's a fantastic fidelity for copying tape and more importantly to him, his interest in its ability to edit. So this meant for the first time ever a radio uh, talk show personality like himself could pre-record a whole season's worth of episodes like in a couple weeks and then go golf the rest of the season as opposed to how it used to be where you literally had to broadcast and record live and that's the only way they knew to do it and cbs nbc the couple of of uh radio networks that existed back then they weren't interested in this at the time because they didn't see any like utility and pre-recording and editing, they felt like, no, of course you have to do it live. But Bing Crosby saw this Ampex tape machine and he gave him a no strings attached $50,000 check to produce the machines and mass produce them and improve the technology and replicate them so he could use them. And Varez, okay, totally unrelated to Bing Crosby in any regard, he is going through a composition slump right he can't get the sounds he wants out of the orchestra out of the wind ensemble and he's in a funk and somebody anonymously sends him one of these i think it's the third generation of ampex tape recorders and that supposedly gets Varez out of his big composition funk and then from 1950 on onwards you see his tape compositions appear they think it was his wife but i don't think we really actually know if anybody knows a place where it's uh, figured out and they know who anonymously sent Varez this Ampex tape machine, uh, please write in and let us know. So anyway, that's what happened in history today. You I, had, I had a confused, yeah. sorry, Stephen Stills and Giannis Anakis were drinking buddies. That's what I was thinking of. It's not that's, true. Bing, Cros Bing, <laughs> Cros Bing Crosby's like a totally different guy. <laughs> yeah. Crosby, Stills, and Nat, never mind. Never mind. <laughs> 
Didn't aren't work. St- aren't Steve Schick and Zanakis drinking buddies? Is that right? Do I have that history right? I Isn't so. everybody who plays Zanakis Zanakis's drinking buddy? In a way, that's a good point. That's a good point. <laughs> so anyway, it's just it's just kind of cool. Like, oh, there's this like weird connection between being Crosby. And I think it's a really good example of how something super popular in the art world, like, I don't know, pop music or even like marching band. Like sometimes we say like, oh, you know, it, it sucks that this like more popular style is like overshadowing um, uh, the, the more artistic type of art, something like Bean Crosby compared to Varez. But hey, like Varez probably wouldn't have kept going if not for this gift, or at least he wouldn't have gotten out of the slump. And we certainly wouldn't have had his tape music uh, whatsoever. Like he would have certainly needed one of those tape machines to do that. So anyway, that happened on September 2nd. And now we got to move on to our guest. We've got two friends of the podcast back on the show, and we've got Josh and Colin here. They were on, uh, Josh has actually been on twice. He was on episode 154 and 223. Colin Hill was on episode 81. So if you haven't seen those episodes or listened to those episodes, I encourage you to turn this off right now, run right out, and just go ahead and join the Patreon for the show. Just go ahead and sign right up for the Patreon. Uh, You know, subscribe and pay like the highest amount you can and that'll make up for you having not heard those episodes so anyway yeah josh has been on the show twice he's the principal percussionist of the kansas uh kansas city symphony so hey josh welcome back how you doing i'm doing great how are you good thanks so much it's good to see you again and i was inspired to invite you when i heard you on facebook recently talking about excellent practice technique so i thought okay like i got to get this uh out there to everyone well you know this is on your mind and also colin hill is here he's associate professor of percussion at tennessee tech university and he has this massive dissertation that's in two volumes it's some 500 plus pages and it's called the 10,000 hour threshold interviews with successful percussionists so hey colin how you doing good how you guys doing good 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 thank you very much i think we should dive right in with our little list of questions and i just wanted to ask both of you uh drawing a name out of a hat we'll start with josh like what do you consider good practice um so it varies mainly i try to think of good practice as me progressing at any level while i'm working on anything so if i get a little looser that's progress for me if i can play a little faster or if i'm anywhere nearer or closer to my goal that day that's a good practice session um and then it gets more efficient the more that i am more I guess, aware of what things that I do that improve what I'm trying to work on. So if I'm just aimlessly practicing and something gets better, while I might improve, that's not an efficient, you know, work (laughs) ethic. Um, But as I get more aware of, oh, when I do this, I improve, or when I do this, or when I don't do this, I start getting better. Then it becomes more of an efficient practice, and then I can have more good practice sessions. (laughs) Yeah, excellent. No, cool, crystal clear. Colin, what about you? What is a good practice? Well, I'm glad to say that Josh and I have essentially the same definition. Um, I think my definition is progress towards a predetermined goal. So maybe I'm a little more regimented than what Josh said. Um, but, you know, we can always get in the practice room. We go in there and we can play, but that doesn't always equal good practice. Uh, so I think it's important you have, you know, before you go in the practice room, a set of goals. Um, what are you trying to accomplish? And the more specific you can be, the better the practice is. Um, you know, I, I hear a lot of students go in there and they just kind of start by playing the stuff they know really well, you know, the first 16 bars of the piece. And while that's fun, I don't think that's good practice necessarily. Um, I always tell students to come up with a priority list. You know, if the performance was tomorrow, what are you most scared to play in public? And if you always start with those things, your, your weakest of weeks, uh, then you always see progress, or at least you're working towards progress. Um, and I think the other thing about good practice is minimizing mistakes. Uh, now, of course, there's a, a type of practice where you're experimenting and you're, you're trying to see what you can get out of certain instruments, certain ideas. But I think in general, 
we sometimes become complacent in the practice room. Um, it's okay to make mistakes in the practice room, and that's true. But I think if you have that mentality all the time, it's not very productive. Because as you guys know, once you get on stage, you have one chance to do it right. Um, so there's, in my dissertation, there's uh, kind of two quotes that kind of stand out to me when it comes to good practice. One is by William Mersch, and he told me that you want to have hundreds of correct versions of the piece already filed away in your physical mental self. So when it comes time to play a performance, your body only knows one version. And I think just that as a philosophy is really powerful. Um, I hear students all the time, they, they play, and me included sometimes, I, I play the same thing and it's wrong, it's wrong, it's wrong, and then I get it right, and then I move on. Um, but you have to kind of the other ratio, right? Um, and yeah. I, think, I think the way you do that is what Paul Rennick told me too, is you know it's all about tempo. Um, usually good practice at a slower tempo. He says, given a slow enough tempo, you can play some really complicated stuff accurately then you just become more efficient about your thinking between the notes. Um, so for me, that's in a nutshell what constitutes a good practice session in my mind. You're both making me think of like, sometimes you go for a run because it feels good. And other times you go for a run because you're trying to get healthy. And it sounds like, yeah, we, you know, usually when we're practicing, we don't necessarily have the luxury, just like, Hey, I got an hour to have fun. It's like, well, you, you, you might not have that, that luxury. Carly, I think you had something. Yeah. A couple of things, actually, Colin, what you're saying about making mistakes makes me think about, there was this quote on a, on a band room board years ago, like middle school band room. And I always think about it. It said, always make new mistakes. Like, of course, we're going to make mistakes when we're practicing. Like, that's how you know what to fix, but don't like play the wrong note 10 times without marking it, you know? Um, and I like, I use that a ton in my teaching, but I always think about it too, as I'm practicing, like, don't be lazy, write it in and then like make a new mistake next time and then you fix it. Um, but I also wanted to ask both of you what you think about practice journals or practice logs, because I think, I think to me, effective practicing, like you have to, you have to have thought about what you're going to accomplish. Right. And then you also want to keep track of what, what progress you're making. So um, maybe we haven't heard from Josh in a minute. Josh, tell us, what do you think about practice logs? Um, this is actually really interesting because I think probably over the course of this podcast, everyone will see everyone's personality and intention or way of going about practicing, which is really nice to see. Um, me personally, I'm a spaz. So keeping everything organized is not my best <laughs> um, so that being said I do keep track of what I'm working on just because that's how my brain works like I will be practicing for 30 minutes and I will remember what happened at minute two minute 17 like what specifically was wrong um, and if something wasn't technically wrong notes will still remember oh your left toe was too tight at this section oh your lower back was too loose in this turn here like that's just how my brain works um but i will always tell my students if this helps them keep track and if this helps them stay organized then journaling is really really important because it's just another way of keeping track and making sure that you're not just aimlessly throwing things at the wall and hoping, oh, did I actually practice my doubles today? So I think it's very helpful. Well, and if you're tracking it better, then you are um, more easily fitting that definition of good practice that you both had, because you both essentially said if you like got closer towards one of your goals that day, then you, you, you may have had a good practice day. And of course, you got to have clear goals you know, like to do that. So if it helps you track that, then yeah, I mean, I completely agree. Yeah, I'm a big fan of, of some sort of schedule, logging, all that. Um, you know, especially for maybe some younger players, um, a schedule just sometimes meaning I'm, I'm remembering to practice everything. You know what I mean? It's not always at a younger level. It's like, oh, uh, you know, I need to make sure I practice snare drum every day. I need to make sure I practice my remissal every day. So I think also in that regard, for a younger player, especially a schedule, just make sure that you're you're hitting all your practice points, which I think is important. You know, for both of you, um, is more practice better? And what is deliberate practice? Because I know that's one of those terms, deliberate practice. Colin, why don't you go first? 
Yeah, I feel like these things are always put in opposition to one another. Everyone's like, oh, it's either like high practice hours or it's efficient. And I don't really see them as two separate things. Um, I think fundamentally, practice hours are the most important, right? You can be really, um, really, really deliberate, but if you don't have enough hours at the end of the day, you're not going to get where you need to go. Um, so I think on a fundamental level, just the pure hours is important. Again, especially for younger players, just getting that time on their instrument, getting familiar with their instrument, with, with their body, with it, how everything works. Um, now, of course, efficient practice is ideal. So I don't want to say that, again, they're two separate things. Um, but in my research, I interviewed 36 percussionists for my dissertation. And really the only correlation between all these people, and in my mind, these are all masters in, in the percussion field, really the only correlation was the practice hours, in all honesty. They all practice with different methods, varying degrees of efficiency, I'm sure. Um, but the high hours were the consistent factor. Um, so in my mind, that was the correlation of success. So just to give the, the viewers a little bit of context, um, the hours, the average hours for these 36 percussionists were the following. Um, the average 1.6 hours per day in middle school, 2.4 hours a day in high school, 4.8 hours a day in college, and 5.4 hours in grad school. And um, the interesting thing is that most of the outliers are on the high end, not on the low end. Hmm. So I think right there, you know, that's important for sure. Gotcha. Uh, just to follow up with what Colin was saying, I like that he said like these two aren't diametrically opposed. You can practice for long periods and still be very focused. Uh, and I find that there's an actual like practice of practicing. You have to get better at practicing to practice for longer hours. And so I think for like a freshman student, it's unrealistic to say like, I want you to practice five hours a day. That would be nice, but I don't think they're gonna be productive by the fifth hour. But I think that you learn your own routine and what you need to work on and how to detect what you need to work on to the point that over time you build up that skill of practicing longer hours. Josh, what do you think about this? More practice better and what's deliberate practice? Um, if I could, I want to start with the deliberate practice. Um, when I first started, my first two teachers gave us basically three tasks, um, maybe a couple more, but let's just say stick control was number one. Um, our etude was number two, and then some rudiment of some sort. So we had three things to accomplish. And then while doing those things, we were supposed to think about a few things. So our hand position, are we letting the stick bounce? Am I tapping my foot? Am I counting out loud? And I think going back to our first question, just having those set goals and making sure that we're being mindful about really executing those goals helps make the practice more deliberate and not just aimlessly practicing. Um, and I know Jason Hahan has done a lot of work on this. I want to shout him out. Um, and then as far as the hours goes, like Ben said, we, we can be really efficient and practice long hours. And I've gone on the super crazy end from like, two hours in high school to 18 hours in what would have been my grad school. Don't ask me how. <laughs> um, but I would, I would say there is a limit to getting overly obsessed with practice because I have done that. And um, while it is good to, you know, get the hours in, it's still important to have balance. And that's something that I don't think we talk about a lot in anything in the world right now. So just making sure that while we do want to improve, we still make time for self and, you know, just balance in general. And yeah, that is my statement. Do, do you have any, do you, I think that's great. And, and of course I completely agree. Do you, do you have any assistance for like detecting when you're out of balance? Cause I've heard, I've, I've heard this advice about, you, you know, make sure practicing doesn't take over your life and that it doesn't like totally you know, con control you in a negative way. But I wonder if a lot of young people, th they feel like if, if they've never practiced an hour before, practicing an hour straight, yeah, like you walk out of there feeling like, whoa, I like, this feels weird. And then they go like, oh crap, I'm out of balance. Like, and I was told I need to, like, like when, when can people start saying like, you know, hey, here's the line and here's what's reasonable. And, 
you know, like, is it also important to say like, yeah, if you've never been in a, in a room by yourself for an hour straight without stopping, it's, it's normal to feel out of balance after that. Yeah. For me, it's, you know, just knowing when you're fatigued, um, physically, but mostly mentally, um, you know, like Ben said, younger players and what you just said, you know, an hour may be a lot, but as you, um, as you kind of learn to practice better or, or just get used to those hours, um, you have to just listen to your body. Whenever you stop being efficient, you have to realize you're fatigued and then you need to either stop practicing, take a break, or you need to, um, you know, switch to something else. Um, you know, we never want to just reinforce bad repetitions. And so I think when we're fatigued, that's the tendency. And um, we're talking about kind of slogans, good slogans. One slogan I saw one time was um, practice doesn't make permanent. Sorry, practice doesn't make perfect. Practice makes permanent. Mm -hmm. I screwed that one up. But uh, I, I think that's a really important thing. So if you're, you're repping things and you're making mistakes over and over and over, that's bad practice. That is not helpful. You're fatigued. Um, you're working in the opposite direction. So one way that I kind of help students combat that is I ha have them do consequence-oriented practice which is essentially, it's not so much time. Um, it's not, I'm gonna go practice for an hour. It's, I'm gonna go practice so I can accomplish this and very specific. So there's a few different variations of that. Um, one is like the simple three times in a row rule. Can I play this three times in a row? And if you play it three times in a row and have three great reps, then you're done with it. Um, but if it, you know, if you do two and you mess up, you gotta start over and it, so it really builds mental strength. Um, the other variation is um, you hear like the penny game where you like take stacks of pennies and every time you play it right, you move it to a new stack. You play it right again, you take another penny to the new stack, play it wrong, you go to the, the previous stack and you're not done until all your pennies go from one stack to the other. Uh, you can also do this a metronome. You know, you take a metronome, you go down 10 clicks. Every time you play it right, you go up a click. Every time you play it wrong, you go down a click. So these are, I think, ways to um, create emphasis on correct repetitions versus just that kind of mindless practicing with lots of mistakes that can happen when you're fatigued. So Josh, you said something about what you called peak performance on Facebook. I guess it was about a week ago or so now, and I just thought it was really wonderful. I was wondering if you'd be kind enough to recount what you meant by that for us. What's peak Oh yeah. Um, so I think when I was in school and, and also I think this is just the way that we are, that a lot of people perceive peak performance to be is to, in some form or fashion, get as good as possible, as quickly as possible before the event. And that can create a lot of stress. I, I'm a very uh, anxious person sometimes. So to feel the pressure of, I need to get as good as I can get before the big whatever, um, it, it creates a lot of stress in the practice room because I'm forcing myself to hopefully microwave my progress. Ooh, that's good. Um, instead of just letting it sit and letting it take as long as it needs to take in, you know, just making sure that it just has the proper time in the oven. Um, and so I think that when we're thinking of peak performance, instead of trying to reach the top level as quickly as possible, it's really trying to raise your floor or raise your middle in a way. Um, and I'm, I'm always finding that in order to play as crazily as possible, I need to deepen my understanding of fundamentals and just make sure my technique is as solid as possible. And that makes reaching the top a lot easier and a lot more stable. When, when you were talking about this on Facebook, I chimed in, I, th I thought it was relevant to what you were describing, but it was a saying that I really like, which is perfection is the enemy of good. And I really, I really like it. Like if you're always trying to be, I mean, it's not a saying I've, I've made up here. It's an old saying, but I mean, the idea is like, well, if you're always going for perfect, like if you're only going to accept perfect, you're never going to achieve anything good at all because perfect might not really be achievable. Um, and the, I think the context I heard it in was like, like political debate. Like if you're trying to bring someone all the way over to your side, it's not going to work. Like you're not even going to get anything good done, but if you're just trying to get like them to, 
just embed if you're just trying to embed like one good idea from your side to their side you have a very good chance of making that happen but you're not going to achieve the overall end perfect goal that's that's just not possible in a single like argument you know in like a single debate that's not going to happen but you could plant the seed of like a good idea and that would be a good thing um, so is that sort of what you mean by like you want to not necessarily reach the top, but you want to raise the bottom, like you said, like your, you know, your worst run of a piece all of a sudden isn't so bad. Yeah. And I think I, I got this mainly from Jojo Mayer. He said in a, an interview, and I can't remember what the interview was, but if I remember, I'll send it to everyone. Um, he basically said, instead of going for perfection, we should go for clarity. Are things clear? And it also, again, lowers the stress of, oh, it has to be specifically this. And if we are always going for that, we never give us, we never give ourselves the chance to congratulate ourselves for making any sort of progress. We're always like, well, it wasn't perfect. Well, you improved. Well, it wasn't this. Well, you like, it's, it's a way of making sure that we don't, you know, we're, we're still kind to ourselves in the practice room. Yeah. And you kind of, um, it's not a resignation, but it's a realization that, um, Hey, like your journey on this piece of music is kind of never ends, you know, and it kind of changes with you, your relationship to this piece or this technique or whatever, it grows and changes as, as you age, you know? And I mean, it's, it's not like, okay, there's, there's a ceiling to find, but I, I like, yeah, elevate the bottom, you know, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, Ksenia. I'd like to uh, have a little conversation about the idea of brain versus hands. And this is something that I see a lot in young kids. I mean, if we think of practicing, we think of it as moments of consciousness and again, like deliberate movement in a certain direction. And of course, our brain and our hands are not disconnected. But there are a lot of kids who are very talented, who spend a lot of time practicing, who tend to develop this hands work before their brain does. And then there are those kids who might have technical deficiencies, but have great things to say that have the whole like brain before hands thing. How do you get those two to connect? And have either of you experienced this in your upbringing or life? No, I think that's a, a great question, um, especially when it comes to memorization, I think, especially for our instrument. You know, memorization can be very mental, um, where you, you, you know the notes exactly, you can sit down and write them down on paper. Um, and then there's other times where you memorize something, and you have no idea really what the notes are, you couldn't write it down on paper, it's all muscle memory, right? Um, and we say that a lot too, when we're stopping and starting in random places, you know, the classic, hey, start here, and like, oh, I can't, you know? Um, so I think that both are great, I think you need both, but I think, um, domination of one or the other can potentially lead to some problems. Um, you know, you guys, you, you've been there, we've had memory slips and sometimes you're, you're mentally somewhere else and your body's just doing it. And we're thankful for that. And then other times our body messes up and then our brain has to compensate. And if your brain can't compensate, then you're in trouble. Um, so I, I don't, I don't know the right answer. I think it's, um, an even mix of both, but it really also, I think it's a little bit dependent on the instrument, um, as well. One I really like Colin is, uh, right there in stick control, you know, which we really think of as primarily for the hands, but on that first page of stick control at the very bottom, it says repeat each exercise 20 times, as we all know, you know, I mean, it, it is this, this thing you're supposed to be really re repeating a lot. So your, your hands do change because you do it enough. But I ask students to count to 20. Like, can you do number one while counting to 20? And yeah, you find it is mentally tiring. I, I mean, I find it mentally tiring even today, uh, counting to 20 in those exercises. And it's like, I just say to anyone listening, like, if you haven't done that, try it, like, like, try, try the first column of uh, 12 and try doing each one to 20. And like, you'll be better at Steve Reich after that. Your, your hands will be better because you played a while, but also like, you'll be able to play Steve Reich, you know, because you have the mental practice to help with that. I yeah, think you oh, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I, I think you triggered everyone. I said, I, I set everyone off because I said <laughs> Steve Reich and everyone <laughs> Everyone's got an opinion about Steve Reich. 
<laughs> well, this doesn't have to do with Steve Reich, but I, I tell students, I think you actually get better at like counting rests in orchestra in your mind while you're listening and, and involved in other things because of stick control. Like I'm so, I'm always counting while I'm oh, doing cool. I just wanted to tell an interesting um, story of one of my interviews uh, with during my dissertation. I interviewed Matthew Duvall, um, percussionist with Eighth Blackbird, and he does something I've never heard of. And it, as soon as he started talking about that case, it reminded me of, of his story to me. He does this really unique thing that whenever he's playing a run through, he counts the measures in his head. Measure one, measure two. And he literally has a count and he ate 327. And the entire run, he's actually counting measures, which- That's too hard. I know, right? It's very unique though, but I think it kind of plays into what we're talking about, how it's this physical mastery, but it's also this kind of mental safety net or this double checking constantly. Uh, it's really interesting. Wow, that is really cool. Josh, you definitely lit up when we said counting rest. Do you have anything to help with this brain-hands connection that Ksenia brought in? Um, okay, so I'm, I'm a very obsessive person with this. I literally will map out every single motion from note to note the entire way through. I don't care how long it takes. Um, so a, a a, a box solo could take 15 minutes, like a, a, a short one could take at least 20 minutes to get through the entire thing doing, like when I say slow, I mean like obnoxiously slow taking every single, like Tai Chi essentially. Um, and that's good for me because it's, that way I know what's happening between notes. So that way, as I'm playing, if I notice that something's a little bit too quick, that means I might miss a note or I'm, you know, speeding up or something like that. I'm just making sure that I'm aware of what's going on at every single moment, which takes a lot of brain power and a lot of time. But um, I, I think a, another good quote is from Bruce Lee, where you have um, natural instinct, which could be the hands only, and then control, which could be brain only, but you need a... a harmonious combination of the two in order to be a competent player <laughs> or just a very um, consistent player, not just, it's like walking to the store and you might know exactly the directions to take that you could just turn your brain off. But what if there's a pothole? If you're not paying attention, you might you know, trip or something like that. So another little analogy. Do you have a favorite Bruce Lee movie? Oh man, Enter the Dragon has to be the classic. Enter the Dragon. That's yeah, certainly, certainly the one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see. Next question. We've got one for Colin now. So I love your self survey, Colin. So this uh, is something Colin came up with. I think just what for Pacet Clinic, right? Yeah, actually, this was um, in my dissertation defense. <laughs> this is where this came uh -huh. out of. Um, you know, I, I did my dissertation, which you mentioned the page number. It was a 75-page requirement. I don't know why I chose to write so much, but um, anyway. That yeah. Was, yeah. Um, yeah, Caleb did that to me, too. It's like a low-page requirement, and then he goes and writes 200 pages. He's like, well, you know, I had to do it. Like, well, I, I was not trying to be an overachiever. What really happened is that I did all my interviews first. I did 36 interviews, and then I realized as soon as I started writing, I have way yeah. too much data. Uh, and you know, so that's the reason why I ended up being so long, but that's, that's what happened to Caleb too. I mean, it's like, yeah, once you get going, it's like, well, I want this to be complete, you know? So yeah, yeah of course. But, um, but yeah, anyway, the, the self-survey is so cool because if you, no matter what your practice problem might be, whether it's like, okay, I find I can't stay in the room for very long. You look at Colin's um, uh, chart and you say like, okay, not staying in the room very long. And then there's a corresponding solution or like I'm getting distracted or I'm getting tired. Anyway, like any problem one could have, you find a corresponding solution. So I was just wondering if you give us some examples and maybe, um, I don't know, like some of your, your favorites from there, most useful yeah, ones. Yeah, I'd be happy to. You know, I think we all naturally do this as teachers. Um, you know, the student is, is not being successful and they swear they're practicing and we have to kind of figure out, okay, what's, what's a better approach, a better method for them to accomplish their goal. So I think that's where it fundamentally came from. Um, but I'll give you some examples. So, you know, one that I hear all the time in lessons is the stop and start. 
thing, right? Where a player just, they're playing pretty well, but they just have all these like just mental stop and starts. Um, so I, I think in the survey, I would say, you know, slow practice is probably the best way to fix that. And then deliberate start and stop points in your repetitions. I think that's key. Um, versus stop what I, on purpose. Like, yes, like so I'm, it's in your control. Exactly. And yeah. I think the process is really important. I'm talking about, you know, the three reps in a row. If you're going to do three reps in a row before moving on, you have to have a defined chunk. So I think if, if students are stopping and starting a lot, I think they need to first, whenever they practice, have a defined starting spot and ending spot, and then make sure that the tempo is achievable to play it perfect multiple times in a row. Um, Christopher Dean says that he gets easily distracted. So he actually puts post-it notes on his music. He has a post-it note and a post-it note and he just slaps it up there. And that is his way of policing himself with that. Hmm. Um, Mr. Mr. Dean, I know also uses a lot of timers, which, which like that was a big thing for me was like, okay, I need to focus for two minutes on this. And he'll, he has like the little like magnetic digital kitchen timer he'll put on a music stand. And uh, that's super helpful. Yep, totally. I think the other thing is doing some mental reps. You know, I think diagnosing the problem is important. Obviously, stop and starts is not a hands issue. It's a brain issue. So if you really isolate that by doing no plane and just standing there and thinking through it a few times, I think that's really powerful. Emil Richards talked about that a lot with me about his mental practice and how he really feels like he's more efficient because um, it's, it's purely mental reps. There's no hands getting in the way getting distracted, getting hung up on this technique. Um, another thing that I think uh, is a common problem is memory slips. Just the nature of our instrument, we memorize more music than other instrumentalists. Um, so some, some ways to kind of help with that. Um, I love Omar's, Omar Carmenata's method when it comes to memorizing music. It's essentially his whole premise is instead of just memorizing notes and rhythms, you need to attach some other context to it. Um, so you have a bigger picture that you're, you're in this little section. If you have a little mess up, it's okay. Cause you know where you are in the bigger picture. Um, so he does this really kind of wacky, but cool thing where he creates a, a storyline, um, like a fictional story, um, as if you're playing kind of like a movie soundtrack. And so every single part of the piece is, is him reliving this imaginary story. And usually he uses his house or his office. And um, so I, I think that's a really interesting way um, to help with, help with memory slips. Another thing that I personally use a lot after doing my dissertation research is Jason Nicholson, who teaches out in Utah. He uses this method where um, whenever he's kind of mentally distracted um, in the moment in a performance, he starts trying to sing along kind of quietly or mentally. Um, mm -hmm. Kind of, you know, like Keith Jarrett style, you know, just vocalizing what he's doing. And he says that really just helps him kind of focus his brain on, on, on the moment and not letting his mind wander. Um, let's see if there's another thing. Um, I think, you know, performance anxiety is a huge thing. Uh, so how do you practice to combat performance anxiety? Um, I think the first thing is just comfort. Um, Christopher Dino says you're practicing not to play the right notes, but practicing to be comfortable playing the right notes. Mm -hmm. um, I was tell students if, if you had a million people watching you and the only thing you had to do is go up there and say your name and your birthday, you wouldn't screw it up because you're comfortable with that information. So I, I think comfort is, is huge. Um, <laughs> but another thing that I, I think is really great is um, implementing some, some environmental replication of the, the performance, um, playing in the hall, putting your clothes on, trying to visualize yourself and what it's going to feel like in the performance you hear about like running around the music building, getting your heart rate up and then trying to do a run through in the practice room, trying to emulate those kind of physical characteristics of being nervous. Um, so I think those kind of things are, will come to mind as far as the survey. Are there any other things I, you get? I, give? Well, I have one. I think that the survey covers so many and I think, um, what's so good about it as a whole is so many of the solutions are like, well, duh, like, like, oh, if your phone's distracting you, like, don't bring your phone in the practice room. Like, 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 I kind of want to know what to do with that student that is like, 
oh, I'm just I just can't get myself to stay in the practice room very long and I'm I'm always distracted. I'm always checking my phone and you're like, "Oh, well, you know what you should do about that." It's like, "Yeah, I know. I should like like just ignore my phone." It's like yeah, like like it's not a problem of, "Oh, I don't know what to do." It's just like, "Dude, you're just like not doing it." Like you just got to yeah, you have to do that. Now yeah. go do it. <laughs> you know, like like that's that's the problem. I I wish I could find a solution to, which I guess is just like discipline yeah i mean um that, i think that's you're talking about like motivation and practice i think that's maybe something we're going to talk about in a little bit um yeah but you know i'm a firm believer in schedules um scheduling your practice time i always tell my college students you know you go to your harmony class at 8 a.m um your music theory class at 8 a.m you don't want to but it's on your schedule and you get up and you go and practice is kind of that way for me is, is you got to put on the schedule and there's a lot of times we don't want to go, but we get there and it's not that bad and we may even enjoy it. Um, so I, for motivation, that's a huge thing for me, just very specific scheduling mm-hmm. of your practice as if it were a course or a, a rehearsal or an obligation. Gotcha. Gotcha. Josh, anything to add to this before uh, Ben asks the next question? Uh, I don't want to derail this completely. Um, but I, I think, Similar to what you were just saying about the student who knows what to do and just won't, um, I think something that I'm continually learning is that, and, and trying to be better at, is that when we're in the practice room, we are by ourselves and we have to deal with ourselves. Um, and knowing how we interact with um, either tasks we've been given is the way that we've been given tasks stressful and that's why we don't like doing the schedule? Um, Or are we afraid to make mistakes so we don't wanna start? Um, That, you know, those types of things. And I think think the survey is a great way of um, being given permission to ask certain questions to get to the bottom of why we aren't able to do what we're trying to do. and then, you know, my, my old teacher, Mark, would say, the more questions you ask, the more questions will come. Like, so that's, that's just one of my thoughts is to, you know, be able to sit with ourselves and ask, you know, the questions to find answers to our problems. Mm, cool. Very cool. See, I wanna, can I say one more thing about this? I think also, um, I think what's great maybe about the survey um, is that there's not more, there's more than one way to do something. You know, I think that's important for our students to understand, you know, um, if you're having a problem and your teacher tells you to do this to fix the problem and it's not working for you, don't be afraid to try another solution, another method. Um, and that's one thing that I think has been really great with doing this research for me personally is helping students find those other methods of accomplishing the same goal. And if this doesn't work and you've tried it, you're going to really, really good try an honest try and it doesn't work, then let's try this method. Maybe this will work better for you. Yep. Excellent. Excellent. All right, Ben, take it away. Yeah. You know, I, I just wanted to mention one thing that I don't think I said on Colin's previous episode, but uh, Colin and I were both undergraduate students at UNT. Uh, Colin is two years older than me. And one thing that's so nice about such a large percussion studio is there are so many people to look up to. And I just wanted to give Colin a shout out for always being such a great role model for the uh, younger players, because all of us were always just in awe of Colin's playing. Oh, uh, and Casey, <laughs> Casey came up with this question. Uh, he said, why do you suspect practice is hard for some and easy for others? And I can still remember there was this one day that I don't know if I had just gotten out of a lesson or what, but I was in Bain Hall and Colin was there and Colin had his own marimba, which was actually uh, Mark Ford's old marimba. He had bought it from him. And Colin just like showed me this marimba and and practiced on it. And I just remember thinking like this guy like logs so many practice hours. And uh, I, I'm not like a, not afraid to like ashamed to, to put it out loud that like I, I really don't enjoy most practice. It's it's something that's difficult for me. And I, I force myself to do it because it's important. But uh, Colin, practice just seemed to come so effortlessly to you. So why do you suspect practice is hard for some and easy for others? You know, I, I don't know the, the exact answer. I'll, I'll talk about me personally. Um, you know, I did drum corps for, for three summers before I got to college. Um, I did three summers when I was in high school. And I remember having one of my first lessons with Mark Ford. 
and my freshman year. And he said, you know, I expect you to practice four hours a day. And I thought that's a morning block. Like I got that, you know? So I, I think for me, I was a little desensitized because of the intensity of drum corps and the long hours that it demanded. So for me personally, I think it was a kind of an easy transition. Um, now just, I think personality is part of it though. You know, I, like Josh said, I, I'm a little compulsive and OCD. Um, I'm a perfectionist and it aggravates me when it's not right. <laughs> um, so I think personality plays into it. I don't think that means that if you have a certain personality type, you can't be successful in the practice room and enjoy practicing. I just think that certain um, personalities gravitate towards repetition, um, being obsessive in, in maybe a good way or sometimes a bad way. Um, for me, what now really motivates me as I've gotten older are, are deadlines and performances. <laughs> and so I, I think that's something that I do in my studio with our students is I always have regular performance deadlines where you, you have to practice or else you can embarrass yourself on stage. And I think um, for some that's really hard, but for others it kind of gets more of that hump. Like just there's that, that oh crap, I gotta go practice because I gotta perform in two days. Um, so I think coming up with external motivators, um, self-proclaimed deadlines, I think are really helpful. Um, but, but I think the process for me, that's the single most important thing is just coming up with a process. Cause if you have a process in the practice room, it takes the motivation out of it. You just have to get there. And then once you get, it, get there, you just follow the process. Um, so I think having a really strong practice routine a way you're going to approach that hour, two hours, three hours of practice is really, really important. What do you think, Josh? Um, I think given, uh, okay, I'm going to use myself as an example. Um, so I think whenever I don't want to practice, it's usually because of I know exactly how long it's, it's going to take me to accomplish what I need to accomplish. And I just don't want to take the time. It, I know how, I know exactly what I need to do. And it, I know how taxing it's going to be. I know how much time it's going to take. I know how tired I'm going to be after I do this process. I know um, what type of balance my life needs to be in order to make the time uh, to practice those long hours. Like, I just don't want to do it. And I think some people who shy away from practicing also know or don't know how long it's going to take. Um, and I think also it could be that they know what level they need to be at to execute at a specific you know, level that they want to. And they either don't know if they can, don't know how long it's going to take, don't want to find out. Like there could be a, a slew of things that could be deterring people from enjoying practice. And I think what helps me the most is finding like a way of reaching those goals without intentionally reaching for that goal. Case in point, if I know I need to win some audition, I'm not going to be thinking about winning the audition. I'm going to be thinking about, let me play this piece in a fun way. And that distracts me from the stress of it needs to be this accurate with this type of time, with this type of sound, with this type of, like, I don't want to be thinking about that. Right. Um, so I think having, again, having ways of um, tricking yourself into practicing or tricking yourself into getting motivated or enjoying the process is really helpful to just get you in the practice room and stay there for the amount of time that you need. Very cool. I want to jump in on this too. What, one thing that I notice a lot in some younger students, especially, is that it's hard for them if they're feeling like not good at practicing. It's sometimes really hard to dig in to the things that they need to do instead of just avoiding it. You know, like your snare drum roll is never going to go away, right? If you don't have a smooth snare drum roll, like you've got to do it. But sometimes you see students like, oh, I'm just going to practice marimba all day because that's really fun and not you know, go through the exercises and all the, all the work that they need. And for that, it's just like, know that you can't expect to be great at something until you put the time in and being able to be honest with yourself and just be like, Hey, like my, my tambourine technique is a mess. I got to sit down and work on it. Cause I haven't done it before. Like that's normal. 
Yeah, Carly, um, when you talk about that, it made me think of something. Um, you know, like practicing good practice habits takes practice. We don't, we're not born with this ability to practice well, right? So I, I think one thing as um, a teacher, what you can do for young students is to literally have a lesson where you just practice. And I, I usually do that, um, usually like a few times with each student before they graduate. And it's usually when they're not prepared for a lesson. When they come in and say, hey, I, I, it was a bad week, I'm already, I'm like, okay, no problem. We're going to spend the next 55 minutes. You're going to practice these things and we're going to do it together. And I'm going to sit and I'm going to watch. And I'm going to interject when needed, but you're literally going to practice me for 55 minutes. And it's always amazing to me um, how bad their practice habits are. And um, it's amazing also what you accomplish in those 55 minutes. You know, I'm always like, holy cow, like you, you can play this and you said you couldn't play it before the lesson started, but now you can play and it took you, you know, 25 minutes of really good practice on it in our lesson. Now you can actually play it. Like that's all it would have taken for your lesson to be prepared. So I think that's maybe as an educator, something that we should do more with our students. Has that led you to think like it's time more than like efficiency? Because it's like, hey, any any way you spend 25 minutes on this is probably going to be better than what you had. <laughs> Just... No, I agree. But, I, you know, obviously those 25 minutes can be very productive or, or slightly productive, right? Right. Sure. So, yeah, sure. I think it's um, for younger students really critiquing and point out like, hey, like, slow it down or, hey, like, you know, that and you keep in there wrong. How are we going to practice in the right note? Or, you know, just little tips for them, I think really is helpful. This, this whole thing of like why it comes easy for some and why it comes not so easy for others, it, it reminds me of a conversation we had, I don't know, many episodes ago about it came up somewhere like if you were the last person on earth, would you still play like or, or, or if there was never an audience, would you still play? And yeah, we kind of a lot of cool stuff came out of that. But it, I think it kind of like, yeah, where you fall on that answer. And I think everyone would still play somewhat. But it's just like, how much would you still play? And would you literally just like give a hour long recital for nobody ever? Or would you still record or whatever, like everyone fell somewhere on that um, spectra. But it seems like, yeah, where you fell on that probably also, I'm guessing, correlates to like how easily you get yourself in the practice room or with like how much joy you or in satisfaction you get out of it. But that's based that's, on nothing. <laughs> that's, that's interesting. I never really thought about that. Me, me personally, I'm not one of those people that needs to play percussion every day to be happy. Um, if I don't have anything coming up, I don't touch my instrument. And maybe that's not good to say that out loud. Right. But I'm very externally motivated. Um, once that date goes on the count, I'm like, oh, crap, I got to I got to get in there. So I, I don't know where I fall in that spectrum. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, th I think I know where I do. And like, yeah, why? I, I think, I mean, it's it's very physical for me. Like, I don't feel good if I don't practice. Like, literally, like, my hands feel like creaky, you know? Like, I feel like my hands go like, like, there's like rusty hinges if I don't get in there and play. I think you're just old. I agree. I'm definitely old. Yeah. I agree. Like, yeah, when you get old, Ben, your bones just start like clashing together. So it could be, yeah, it could be that. That's good, Ben. That's science. Let's do this. Let's do this last question. Well, so it's related to getting motivated. And I guess, um, yeah, like any recommendations for getting motivated? And I, I love what Colin said, by the way, about like, hey, just take motivation out of the equation. That way you guarantee you do it. I think that's cool. But I imagine, you know, people also like, hey, if you do happen to have some motivation, great, go in and go in and go in and use it. Um, so yeah, like recommendations for getting motivated, uh, just getting yourself to want to be there to do it. Any, any ideas or recommendations, uh, Josh? Um, I think it's again, knowing yourself and knowing like, okay, let's not take music for example. Um, what motivates someone to do their taxes? <laughs> um, that could be more of a, I'm obligated to do this. So that is my motivation is obligation. Okay, um, what motivates someone to go see their partner? Oh, I'm in love with this person. So I'll, I am motivated by love. Like there's always a reason for, you know, doing the things that we do every day and finding a reason just to get in the door, whether it could be, um, okay, I need to put the hours in, let me just go. Like, okay, that at least gets you in the door, whether or not that will be a, a meaningful practice session, you're at least there. Um, or if, uh, not not to say you should do this, or if you want to, you know, play your favorite piece that you always play every day. 
that gets you into the door and hopefully gets your hands moving. And then hopefully you do the things you're supposed to be working on. Um, but I think just to be careful about making sure that our motivation isn't always obligation and isn't always out of fear of getting an F or something, um, because that influences the way we're going to practice and the, the energy that we practice with. So I don't want to always practice every day. Sometimes I'm just doing it because I know I'm supposed to practice every day. And, you know, it, it becomes a habit after a while and whether or not I do meaningful, deliberate practice, or I just need to move my hands. I try to do something every day, whether it's five minutes of just loose wrist work, or it's listening to a piece of music. Um, and then the other thing is, I think not all the time practice needs to be in the practice room. I think we, I don't want to say we use the practice room as a crutch, um, but we limit ourselves to, it has to be done in the practice room. There are times and there are situations where we really need to be in the practice room, but sometimes practicing is, oh, I need to figure out what the character of this piece is. Let me go to an art museum and figure out, okay, what, what piece of art reminds me of this piece or something like that. Um, doing yoga could be practice to work on your physical movement and things like that. Like there, there's a lot of things, if you allow it to, there's a lot of things in normal life that can help you execute and accomplish things in the practice room. So I don't want to derail again, but that's something that I think about as far as like motivations, maybe not going into the practice room is the best thing. Maybe you need to do listening or maybe you need to do mental practice, or maybe you need to do exercise. There's a lot of things that can contribute to your progress in the practice room later. Excellent. Uh, Colin, what do you think? Yeah, I think, um, I think there's a lot of factors, but I think repertoire is really important. Um, you know, we all fell in love with music for a reason. We heard something we loved and it, it moved us emotionally. Or we thought it was cool or whatever it may be. And I think we've all been there where we're playing a piece we love and we don't want to stop playing it. We don't want to go to that boring Stevens technique exercise because we want to keep playing the solo over and over and over. So I think, you know, obviously um, it's naive to think you're going to like everything you do in the practice room because or else, you know, you won't be challenging it better. Um, there's going to be stuff that you just have to do. It's like eating your vegetables, right? Uh, but if you can generally have at least one aspect of your practice session that you really look forward to musically, I think that's important. So I think being a teacher, it's important to be flexible on repertoire choices, figuring out, okay, what does the student need to work on? And then giving them some options to choose from. Like, hey, these four or five pieces would really be good for you right now. Which one do you like? Which one do you want to tackle? Um, so I think that is really important. Um, I think other on the other side of it, um, external motivation, recording yourself is a really great way to motivate yourself to practice. We've all recorded ourselves and heard what we sound like and we kind of cringe, right? Um, and so I think that's a, a great way to kind of like periodically, like, oh, this rumba solo sounding good. I'm ready to perform it. And you record yourself like, no, I'm not ready. That part sounded bad. <laughs> so I think that's um, a really maybe easy way to, to find some motivation um, mm -hmm. about upcoming performance. We had a conversation recently about like being in touch, what you think is good. You know, it's like it takes a long time to get a sense of like what sounds good, what you like, uh, why you like it. It seems like a lot of this like, yeah, maybe comes to light as we figure those things out. And I don't know, maybe maybe that's partly why in your research, Colin, like time was the common factor. Like given enough time, you're going to figure these things out. Like You're going to figure out how to be efficient for yourself. You're going to figure out what you like you're going to spend time listening, figure out things you like, and you're going to start to have like, like you're going to develop taste, you know, yeah. like, like I've heard people compliment uh, my old teacher, Nancy Zeltzman, just say like, she just has really good tastes. It's like, she'll just say like, I think you're like this. And you're like, wow, you're right. I do. Like, how did you, how did your taste know that I would, I would really, really, that would speak to me, you know? And I don't know. Yeah. It's just a, a wisdom there that uh, I guess comes from, comes from experience. Um, okay, Ksenia, social media questions, rapid fire, 30 seconds, go. Here we go. The first one is from pr.esten148, who uh, said, could we ask how to 
truly start learning a piece, etude, etc., in the most efficient way possible. So please, quick advice. Josh. So what I usually do is I analyze what techniques are required of me in the piece. And I spend one day a week just doing all the technical exercises and experimenting with those techniques. So that way, when I'm learning the notes, I'm not also having to figure out, oh, what technique did I need for this particular section and that kind of thing. It, it helps me to not just, I can separate practicing the music and the uh, phrasing from the mechanics of it. And then if I find more problems, then I can spend another day just isolating technique and then go back and practice the music. So that's what I usually do. Um, plus just slow practice and making sure that I can sing what I'm playing at the same time and move efficiently and all that stuff. Awesome. Colin. Yeah, I think what Josh at the end, slow practice. We always have to remember that um, just because we have an upcoming deadline to get this piece learned, practicing at tempo is not going to help us get us there quicker. Um, that's something I always have to remind myself, like, okay, slower is actually faster. Um, so I think that's a big thing. I think also if we're talking about like how to really efficiently learn something, Brian Mason um, told me this thing that really made a lot of sense to me. He said, preparing a piece, learning a piece is like cooking a meal. You know, good chefs, they don't start, um, you know, just whatever they grab first. They have a, like a method, like, okay, this is going to take the longest to cook. Like the rice is going to take 30 minutes. I need to start that now where, you know, I, this fried egg will take like one minute at the end. And so I think maybe one approach is to take the piece at the beginning and look at it and say, okay, what is going to take a long time to mature and get good? Let's start there. What's not going to be too hard to do this and then save that for later. And that way you can really efficiently get the piece all ready at the same time. Um, so I think that's a good analogy. That's such a good analogy. Well, that's well, awesome. I well, I don't know. We have a cooking expert in the room. Ben, what do you think about that? 30 minutes to cook rice? What kind of rice is that? Mace, <laughs> I don't like a risotto Brian, would take. Yeah, Mason, Mace, what are you talking about? I'm not a cook. So as you can tell at that analogy, yes. We have Brian accurate. on the show. It was very accurate. I'll vouch for that. Okay, okay. Cool, cool. All right, Ksenia. Awesome. And our second question is from Ryan Carlisle, who said, can you discuss practice strategies you both use when you hit a wall? Yeah, that's, um, that's a good one. I, you know, it depends on how thick that wall is um, and how many times you try to get over that wall, I think. Um, you know, if it's, it's a, if you really haven't attempted to scale that wall, then you need to keep trying and find different methods. I think changing your methods, approaching the same problem from a few different ways is really important. Um, I think the other thing is that if you've been just like banging your head against that wall endlessly, it's really helpful just to leave it for a few days. Um, I think we, we form anxiety sometimes with a passage and no matter how many times we, we practice and play, right. We get to in the performance and we just screwed up because we're just so anxious about it. Um, but I, I think overall multiple methods trying to accomplish the same goal is really helpful for me personally. Josh? You know, that reminds me, there's this, uh, something Colin says, there's this great quote and I'll probably butcher it because I'm frantically Googling it to, to find what the actual quote is, but it's from one of my favorite books, if not my favorite book called The Last Lecture uh, by Randy Pausch. And he says that brick walls are not there to keep us from our goals. They're there to allow us to prove how bad we want them. Hmm. Cool. cool. Can I add one more little thing on that? Just remind me. Um, ben Walland really talked a lot about, you know, like those problem spots. Don't, don't get mad at it. Instead, embrace it as an opportunity to grow. Um, you know, problem spots are usually a deficiency we have as a player. Like I, I am really poor at this stroke type or this kind of technique. And that's why I'm having a problem with it. Um, so I think if you approach it that way, I'm fixing this problem forever, not just for this piece. I think that's another great approach. Uh, I want to quote Keith Aleo because he's awesome. He says, every challenge is a gift. So yeah, <laughs> Keith is awesome. You beat me to it because that's the Keith quote that everybody knows. <laughs> that's what I was thinking about when, when Colin was saying the last bit. Um, actress, her name's Andrea Roth, talks about um, uh, when acting, she says, you know, your weaknesses are what makes you unique like the things you weren't good at and the fact that you overcame them, of course, like the way you overcame them, that's usually like how you get a secret ingredient 
in like how, how you're different from everyone else. So like if you, I don't know, you had a marimba solo and it had a one-handed roll and you had to do like what Josh described, you had to make a whole litany of exercise extractions for one-handed rolls and like spend an hour of your practice every week dedicated to that new technique, you're probably going to end up with something that not everyone has. Whereas if you just plowed through it, it's like, oh yeah, I can do this. Like, um, well then you're kind of just doing what everyone else does, but you're probably going to end up with something that, that not everyone has. If you, uh, if, if, if it was a challenge you had to overcome and like, those are actually the differences that make build us in, in a unique way. Um, according to her, I thought that was really cool. And I, I relate to that guys. Thanks so much, Colin, Josh. It's great to see you both again. And, um, yeah, thanks as always, you know, for, for being here, got to have you back on in a few more years. Definitely. Thanks for having us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having us. You betcha. Yeah. Thanks, Josh. Ben, Carly, Ksenia, we'll catch you later. 296. Bye, everybody. See ya.